0: Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Sin City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode fourteen of Canines Talking Sense. This episode. I get to sit down and talk with Stacey Barnett. Stacy, for those of you uh, may know her best from uh, her work and her accomplishments within the Nose Work and AKC Scent Work worlds. Her and I talk about the experiences she's had in Nose Work and Scent Work, her accomplishments, the things that are valuable from her experience from being a high-end competitor in this world as well as her experience as a chemist, which is very helpful when knowing how odor works and how substances uh, react with the environment. We get into all of those things. So whether you are somebody who competes in nose work or scent work or you're a professional, there is very good information that uh, she shares in regards to all this on this episode. More recently, though, Stacy's had me... Uh, on her webinar platform, and we have had some really good educational conversations and classroom uh, material sharing on the webinar. On that same topic, we decided to move forward and do two more webinar episodes this month in October, so stay tuned for that. They will be coming out here very soon on the various social media platforms. And, uh, on the show notes of this, uh, episode here, I will, uh, try to create a link for you guys to follow. Otherwise though, it will definitely be on her social media and my social media. So stay tuned for two part series on canine cognitive testing, learning better and learning more about your dogs and how to use these tests for selecting a new dog for your training or your program. So with all that said... Hope you guys enjoy my interview here with Stacy Barnett. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. Today, we get to interview and speak and ask questions to Stacy Barnett. Stacy, for those of you that know her, uh, is pretty well known throughout the nose work world and, and some of the professional cycle uh, of dogs as well, but. Stacey, welcome to the show. And for those who may not know you already, uh, would you mind giving like a quick background of what you do and, yeah, and where sure. you're Sure. Hey,
1: and um, by the way, thank you, uh, thank you for uh, for having me on your show. I love listening to your podcast. By the way, um, a lot, a lot of really really awesome information, much. and uh, and it, it's it's a it's, it's really you're doing a super job. Uh,
0: Thank you very much. And, I, and you know, to add a little Fest uh, and, and please describe also what you do with your webinars because I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. And I and it's such a great uh, tool for those that want to learn. And, and you and I have already kind of talked on the side about doing some collaboration on that as well. But with that said, I'll kind of pitch that back over to you and, and add that to your uh, description of uh, your background and where you're at.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I founded uh, Sensibility's Nosework, and um, I'm also a, an instructor at Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. Um, and you know, basically, I'm a, I'm a competitor. I'm a trainer. Um, this is this is you know my full time gig. I teach uh, webinars. Um, I go. I teach seminars. Most of most of my teaching. I don't. I don't do local classes anymore. But. Um, you know, most of my stuff is online, uh, except for my in-person seminars and those I teach, um, both, uh, na- both in North America and in, uh, and I've been to Europe, um, you know, uh, quite a bit. So, okay. um, start, starting to teach over there as well. Um, basically though, I just love the sport and, uh, my background, uh, educational background is chemical engineering, which actually fits really, really well. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually using it for the first time in my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with dogs, no less.
1: Like, yeah exactly exactly what better what better way you know absolutely so uh, yeah yeah but it, it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun but you know my, my passion is really getting education out there uh, about uh, what I consider to be uh, the very best sport um, out there for dogs mm-hmm. uh, and and just seeing you know the the changes in my own dogs and the changes in other dogs um, t- to me it's it's just so inspiring and it, it's like this this you, you almost get to step into a different dimension when oh, yeah. um when you're doing detection type of work and um, just you know being able to see you know the dog painting the picture in terms of what what's going on and and i'm just fascinated you know i'm, I'm a learner mm-hmm. i uh, you know I, I i love to learn so it, this
0: is the best sport for that without a doubt and and there's and and you can probably test this and, and speak on your experience on this but it's it's evolving so much these days. What we thought we knew about detection dogs, both the dog aspect and then the, uh, chemical side of it when it comes to odor and things like that. So you kind of get to be in a crossroads there. You get to see both aspects of, in our community where we are learning more about the dogs and what they can do with their noses. And then what we are learning about the odors themselves and the chemicals uh, like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So in that, uh, we'll, we'll kind of start with the beginning. Like what is, how important is foundation and what are some key important things that you bring up or that you teach when it comes to foundation work when it, on, on dogs being introduced to odor?
1: Oh my gosh, foundations is everything, right? And, and I, think, I think it's something that um, doesn't always get stressed as much as, as it should be. Um, and it, but, but it it really, it sets, it sets the tone for the dog's entire career. And I I feel like, and even if you get a dog in the higher levels and you start to see inconsistencies and, um, and, what's going on nine times out of 10, you can trace it back to a foundational issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, what I, I focus on, uh, with foundations, I kind of do things, um, I, I I try to diagnose things in, in terms of like sequential buckets I'll I'll start with understanding does the dog have the confidence that they need um, to be able to do the job, and a lot of that has to do can the dog acclimate to the area? Um, does the dog have self confidence in what they're doing and in you know and in themselves? And does the dog have confidence in the handler? Okay. Um, and then you know from there you know I start thinking a lot about um, kind of you know arousal management and um, you know d- you know d- is the dog at the right arousal state? Um, okay. And does the dog have a right type of focus so you could have either you know your environmental focus your 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 handler focus or your search focus which is mm-hmm. kind of like a task focus yeah you know is the dog ask and then and then you have like the next layer is really the independence you know does the dog have the you know have the independence to be able to go out and seek odor, and when you kind of layer all those things on it, it just kind of starts to bring together this, this a little bit of a wrapper uh that that helps to support the dog as they move up the levels mm-hmm. um and but so so often, what I see is that people they see a symptom, and so they assume their problem is a symptom. Correct. And they try to solve the symptom, and they don't look at what are the foundational issues that that are causing that symptom to happen. And so that's kind of that. That's a real and regardless about how I mean. There's a lot of different ways you know to get a dog on order and, and everything. But um, regardless of what, you know, but, but from the very first step, I mean, I, I have a. a Fourteen-week-old puppy right now, and you know I'm really thinking foundations. I want to turn this puppy into a summit league dog. So how do I, right? And so it's it's through the it's through foundations.
0: Okay. Yeah. So when you you get the dog that kind of meets the obviously the initial criteria that you're looking for, um, for listeners that are let's say highly interested in that, there's a lot of uh, discussion many times as. What's more important to work on first? Is it the indication? Is it the search? Is it, and there's a lot, you know, it goes down to a pass, but there, as we both know, there's lots of different, uh, opinions on that. Kind yeah. of expand upon your experience in what you typically do, uh, in that initial process.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Part of it is, uh, Cameron, the thing is that the, um, dogs all vary, right. Yes. And, and my emphasis on one aspect or another may vary depending upon the dog that I'm working with. Um, if you have a dog that doesn't have a lot of natural hunt drive, um, you know, you really need to focus on building that and and that's even more important than the odor part of it. Um, but if you have a dog with natural hunt drive, you can just layer right onto it. So your, your emphasis might be a little bit different. Um, you know, I, um, in the way I train, actually, um, I, I do uh, do some some searches for primary, but I don't I don't pair food and odor together. Um, so I kind of work um, the imprinting kind of in parallel to the um, to finding food. But depending upon the dog's need for environmental comfort or the dog's need to develop just natural hunt drive, um, I may delay the odor part of it. So it just part of it really depends on the dog. You know, I'm a big I'm believer in um, training the dog in front of you and not um, not necessarily following
0: a recipe. Absolutely, that makes sense. No, it, it does. I mean, it's and it's funny because you know I had posted a or I made a post today a little while ago about uh, you know. Typical evaluations of canines and and those that have to go out there and look at dogs and you know and of course in the general scheme we look at a lot of things it's the dog's motivation the drives the environmental the behavior temperament but very rarely do we look at intelligence and I my question was those that look at intelligence how do you how do you do that I'm curious to hear you know various ways of doing that because at the end of it all. My, the goal that I've learned by adding an intelligence examination or the little brain games as I call it helps me better train that dog in front of me. And those little nuances that I learn from the intelligence or the cognitive side of things helps me as a trainer be prepared. So you know, a good example I, I like to use is a dog who I see is very strong in memory. Tells me right then and there when I start doing my training to not do a pattern for very long at all, or don't do something more than a couple times because it'll operate off memory first and then nose. And I really want to use nose first and not memory right away. So. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, that's hitting way close to home. My my two-year-old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She's just like yeah yeah we did that yeah I remember that
0: one <laughs> yeah, yeah no and it's and it's it, it, it but the more we get ourselves kind of clued into that uh, like you said the dog in front of us and the the better we train that dog in front of us the better that dog is going to be versus like you said doing that a canned system uh, you know, one size fits all doesn't fit all so it, you know. That I, and, I, and I, like you said, I just like you. I take that that point as a personal goal: is to always do what I can to understand that individual dog in front of me, and catering that training to that dog.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know that. You know the thing is that they are really are individuals, and if we can, um, you know, seek to learn um, what that dog is about um, before we train the dog or well, or we're going to learn a lot while we train the dog, but, um, and just being able to, to assess and see where, where the dog may need a little bit more support. Um, I, I think it really, really goes a long way. Um, and, and I kind of think about things in terms of like layers. So I do, I have this pyramid that I teach off of, um, I call it, I don't know, I, I named it the four cornerstones of trial preparation. I wish I could rename it, but but now it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's what happens, right? So it's a pyramid. And if the first layer of the pyramid is, is confidence. And then the next layer is motivation. The third layer is skills. And then the last piece is stamina. So the, you know, what I... I like to focus on, before we even get to skills, I try to you know, re- reiterate to people, we need the confidence and motivation there. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the confidence and motivation, yeah. don't even bother yeah. with the
0: skills. Yeah, no, very true. Because confidence is extremely important because obviously no matter uh, where this person goes to with their dogs, they're going to encounter many different things. So whether they their goal is to go compete or the goal is just to do an activity, uh, helping that dog with that confidence and establishing confidence is absolutely key.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, it's, you know, and there's different types of confidence. You know, you've got the confidence in the environment, which is kind of what we usually think of with confidence. And um, I mean, that that's a big piece of it. But then there's also, um, does the dog have confidence in themselves? And sometimes you, you see a dog that just doesn't believe that they can be right. Or a dog that doesn't believe in their in their own abilities or a dog that's been, um, is worried about being wrong. I guess that, that's what I mean. Um, you know, you see some of those dogs and um, and it does affect their searching because they, they're the ones that tend to check in with the handlers. Right. Like, am, am I doing this right? Is this it? You know, what do you think? You know, and, and then you get the whole confidence in the handler, which is really comes down to the trust issue. You know, does, You know, does the dog trust that if they indicate they're going to get a reward? Um, and and I, I see all those things really, um, coming together and, and is one of the, the, the biggest challenges for, for a lot of teams, especially, you know, newer teams. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's tough, but you really need to kind of work on that. And a lot of times people, um, they, they snowball into, um, a problem and then they're looking at the symptom and then they're trying to fix the symptom and, you know, it just just doesn't work that way, you know?
0: No. And and so you bring up. Uh, what you kind of touched around there, uh, a post that you had recently about handler influence. So I think that's a, it's a huge thing both in the professional world and in the sport of nose work. So if you don't mind, expand upon that post, talk about it a little bit, what you've seen, what you've learned, things like that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it was a, a lot about um, the, the balance between kind of like independence and, and handler and like how, how much should a handler be involved from like, uh, and what I mean involved, I mean like uh, more asserting themselves. Um, the handler should always be involved, right? You should always be present in the search, but um, there's there's an aspect I think people try to jump into kind of asserting themselves and do a search um, a little bit too soon. And, and then you end up with basically, you know, you kind of cap where the dog can do, uh, what the dog can do, because once you start getting into um, These larger search areas and tighter times—it's it, just not—it's um, just not feasible, uh, to, you know, to, to try to get through it with direction. So, so you have to, but in order to get to the point where you can adequately use it, you have to—you have to have that independence first. You know? And and it, I think it's finding that balance. And I think a lot of times when people they realize, yes, now I need to do a shift into making sure that you know we cover the search area in um, in more of a logical flow. Um, you know, then I think you start to get a handler that over directs. It's kind of, they swing the pendulum a little too far, you know, and and that's when things that the wheels fall off the bus.
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's, so again, kind of going into that cognitive research I've done, the, the things that we looked at were how much do dogs use us for inference or information? And the thing that I pass on moving that into the detection aspect is if you, just like you said, if you put yourself into that learning equation early on, you've taught that dog to rely on you for information versus relying on the environment. Doesn't mean you can't undo it, but that initial phase of learning, you've created a outlet for the dog to go, well, I'm struggling or I'm stressed or what have you. I'm going to go here because this has worked before. And and it is so hard for handlers and trainers to have patience. So when we see a dog struggling to learn or making a mistake, of course our natural instinct is, oh, we got to jump in and fix it or help. And so often, more times than not, that becomes a bigger problem than what it was by letting the dog do something. And a quote a, a I use all the time, and I've seen it in various uh, nose work lectures as well, um, in the absence of you doing something, your dog will do something. So... Allow your dog the opportunity to to try and make mistakes. Making mistakes is still learning, but Absolutely. it's so Absolutely. hard for us to have our patience and and allow the dog that that ability. And in some cases, like you talked about, uh, addressing the symptom, not the problem. Maybe the problem was there was too many variables in the beginning and there wasn't, and it wasn't easy enough to find the right answer. So as this dog struggled because maybe too many variables existed or any number of other things, but we jumped in. And like I said, by jumping in causes that issue.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of times, sometimes, um, you know, especially if we're working on our own or, you know, we set a hide and it's so easy to assume that the hide is actually findable. So, and I think this happens a lot where people will set a hide and not realize it's a really challenging hide that may be too challenging for that dog, or maybe it's not available because of the, the airflow. So then, you know, the dog struggles, so they try to help the dog. And then the dog is saying, well, I don't know where this is, but, you know, you have a nose too. What do you think? Uh-huh. You know, and then then you get into this, you know, the, the, the dog looking to the handler and then the handler, you know, tries to help the dog. And you just get into this downward spiral. It just
0: doesn't help anybody oh, yeah. but, no I, yeah. I do a, I have a video in my lecture where it shows a handler going through this and doing exactly what you said and which brings up a, a question I have asked actually every in the most recent podcast every um, chemist and/or uh, doctorate that works with odor the, this question and the common question the question I ask is there's a, a, a term used in the detection world quite often not at source and the person who put the hideout, the, the substance out, is convinced the location of the substance is the best source or location of the odor. And chemistry tells us that's not always correct. There, yeah. there will be a better location further down, X amount of feet away, based on any number of different factors, wind, time, temperature, those kind of things. But as a handler or a trainer, well, I put it right here, so it's right there. If the dog alerts anywhere else, it's fringing and it's wrong, and, exactly. and we're and we are so wrong to assume that. And yeah. again, without but you know, like people, a person like yourself who has the background in chemistry can say, yeah, no, not so much. The dog's yeah. nose is actually more accurate and more right by responding here, indicating over here, yeah. than where we where we put it. It was is that a correct statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm seeing it actually, um, it really kind of hits, um, it, it hits hard. That, that, that aspect hits really hard when people start doing elevation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you, you place a high hide and you assume, well, the dog's going to get right under it and pinpoint it. Well, now maybe that's not where, where the dog can access odor. Um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the way you're, well, you you just, so, so then you get back to the helping thing, right? Yep. You're trying to help it to get right underneath it. Then the dog realizes, oh, well, if I look up, you're going to give me a cookie. <laughs> yeah, right? oh. yeah. And then they start getting into, oh, well, if I look up, I'm going to get a cookie. And now you've built, um, you know, your, your, um, you know, it would use the term false alert, right? You're building yeah. that in, um, you know, in your behavior chain. Um, you know, so, or, or the, the, what what I think you, uh, on one of your prior uh, podcasts, unproductive alert, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, which I love that one. I'm like, oh, that's a great term. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you get, you get, you know, where the dog gives you a behavior because they don't know what else to do, you know? And, and that's where you run into the trust issues. So you get into the kind of this death spiral down. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, then, and then, you know, you're in
0: trouble. Oh, and, and Dr. Hare on the podcast I had with him brought up a, another very valid point. I say point, but which was when we point to something, the dog doesn't always take that as, Oh, go there. A lot of dogs look at it and go, what do you want from me? Do you want this from me? Do you want that from me? So obviously in detection work, there's various times where we try to point or gesture to, hey, check here or go there. And the dog just responds with a behavior because is this what you want? Is this what you want? And then of course, as we keep moving our bodies or using body pressure at times to kind of move the dog towards the area we believe or where the odor is at. The dog's like, oh, okay. I'll just keep doing these things, and you do those things, and this is all part of the cycle. And okay, you'll say the word "alert," and then I get my treat. Exactly. Yeah. So, it, it, and it's it, like you said, it's such a. It, it happens all too often where you know it. We react, then the dog reacts. And, it, and, and another saying I like to use is it's not your job to convince the dog there's odor there. It's the dog's job to convince you there's odor there. But way too often we spend time trying to convince dog there's odor here or do this for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if, if I'm training a dog and my dog is saying I can't find something, I mean, mm-hmm. the worst thing in the world I can do as a trainer is to say is, is, is to not believe that and, and not um, – not respect that that sure. comment from the dog, right, because at that point, then I start to assert myself, and and we're just not going to uh, to get a lot of education there. No, um, you know the dogs have to problem solve to learn. Yes, you know they they can't. They're I mean yeah they're they're born. I like to say that you know dogs are kind of born as like Harvard graduates in olfactory science, or right? They're all they're all like they have Harvard degrees in olfaction when they're born, but they turn into like NASA rocket scientists, right? Um, through through training and, and through um, you know the being, you know really you know setting setting appropriate hides for them um, you know so they need that education right they need the, those puzzles they need um, they need well placed hides
0: mm-hmm. and there's and to to all this point that we're making for listeners there is no other animal on the planet that is better at reading us and reading our communicative gestures. So even monkeys, chimpanzees, bonobos, ones that genetically are close related to us, do not have the skill set a dog does in reading our commutative intentions. So if we come into something and we think we know the answer and we communicate that as such, the dog's like, okay, I'll just read you.
1: Yeah, they're going to listen. You know, the the thing Mm -hmm. is we are communicating 100% of the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And dogs are communicating one hundred percent of the time, and so it comes down to the dogs are listening to us, and we have to be we have to be aware of what we are communicating um, because it's going to influence the dog. And the dog, um, you know, and we also have to be aware of what the dog's communicating. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the dogs just basically say, "There's nothing here," yep. you know. And and it, I feel like if I were to say, "But no, there is," uh-huh. that's almost. Me, I, I kind of almost think of it almost like an ego issue sure. because me thinking I know more than the dog, um, but I don't. You know, I don't have that nose, and if right. my dog says it's not there, you know, it's not available.
0: Oh yeah, and, and like you said, and I see it on the professional side of things, unfortunately, more times than not, where the ego of the handler drives the equation, or the the biased thinking of the handler affects the outcome of the search. And and we have to take all those things aside, and no matter what it is, whether we are in sport or whether we're in professional aspect, we have to let the dog do its job. We have to, like you said, we're still a team. I still will go in and make presentations as needed. I will still ensure the dog checks areas. As my job is to interpret that dog. But at the same time, I have to trust the dog to do its job. And if I lack that trust, then maybe we aren't ready to be doing, whether it's a trial or whether it's a search of a vehicle for probable cause or an explosive search someplace, if I doubt or I have a high level of doubt when the dog performs its work, I have to question whether I should be doing whatever it is I'm doing with that dog and go back to addressing that, whatever is causing that doubt.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's where the foundations come,
0: right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it, it's it, yeah, especially with trialing. I mean, I don't, I you know, that's that's where my experience is is on the competitive side. But um, you know, if the dog, you, you really have to make sure that the dog can do the job. Um, and it, if you're, um, and, and you have to be able to, you know, the dog's got to be able to do the job and do it well. I think it's not, it's not just enough to say, oh, you know, my dog knows birch, and then just go into a trial and just assume that that you're going to be able to, you know, to and everything and and it's not good for the dog's long-term development you know so you know but but yeah it's it it, a lot of it has to do with you know the i think you know to your point the trust right and uh, and you have to the dog also has to trust. They have to trust you. They have to trust themselves.
0: Oh yeah, because I've watched whether it be a competitor or uh, a, a, a new handler who's now certified and on the road. Those first searches, whether you go into a trial, it's the first time you've done a trial, or you get your first call to a service call to deploy your dog. All you do is hold that leash and go. Please don't screw me now. Let's go. And all you can do is let that let that dog work. And it's such a it's so tough because. When you're in those training settings, you feel like you have your training wheels on. And when you're, you are out on your own or you're in that trial and that judge has got the clipboard or you're on that traffic stop and it's you by yourself or there's other officers watching going, oh, let's see this new team work. You, you're <laughs> like, oh. And, that, and as we know, back to that communication process, that dog feels those nerves in us. And then, of course, we're doing stuff we never typically do when we're in training or we're, do, we're being yeah. squirrely or what have you. And then – like-
1: you know? Yep, and then so we like, like,
0: "Take it, dog! You messed that up." Well, no, maybe we did some things too. So
1: it's amazing, actually. I mean, especially if you can with trials. What's really cool is a lot of times they have a videographer, and uh, being able to see, you know, if you make a mistake in a, in a trial, to be able to go back and see what happened, because a lot of times it just, you know, maybe you just decelerated at the wrong spot. And, and the big one that I've been seeing a lot lately, um, and, and this, by the way, is not restricted to North America, which I, I think is kind of interesting uh, is, and it just goes back to the, the direction versus independence. It's almost, it's kind of uncanny. It's like all of a sudden the dog is about to give a change of behavior and the handler redirects him somewhere else. I see that so often. And, and I, I've seen it in some of my own videos where, you know, cause I, you know, you know, I'm looking at my video going, oh boy. I shouldn't have done that, you know, and and it's just helping me to realize um, how the, the dog is really really relying on the communication, right? Versus no no no, I got this, um, and it's gonna depend a little bit on the dog, you know. Uh, I look at my two year old who's a lot more independently naturally independent than than, than my older guy, but you know, it, it it's really fascinating. But that that I see that is a big trend. That is a big trend and, and it's not, um, or a trend. I don't know if I'm using the word trend, right. Um, although I, I do feel like I see an, a little bit of an increase in that.
0: So what's some other, speaking of that, like things that you're seeing, uh, both here and abroad, what are, what are some other things that you're starting to see, uh, occurring in the nose work world or in the competition side of things?
1: Yeah. And, you know the thing is, it's it's a hugely growing sport, right? And it, it's growing um, by leaps and bounds all across um, all across the world. Um, I mean, you're, you're seeing organizations pop up, you're seeing countries are getting involved, and I think it's really awesome. Um, but I think sometimes we try to, um, I think I think honestly in the sport, sometimes we, we, we try to emulate a lot of the professionals too much, um, and it, it, and I'm I'm not saying it in terms of like like emulating it is, is a bad thing. It's just, it's, it's a different the sport itself is, is different. The handling's different, the, the, the parameters are different. So you might have some differences in the way you need to handle certain areas. Um, but sometimes I think people try to copy something without understanding all the whys behind it. And if you think about the whys, it can, it can say, all right, this is, I can be inspired by this and then adapt what makes sense versus going, um, going whole hog. if that, if, if you, if what I mean, um, and, and it's just kind of the saying there are certain things that, that are very, very, very adaptable. Um, and then there are certain, you know, certain things that you might want to modify based upon, you know, the, the parameters of the, of the, the level and the organization that you're competing in.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and like, you, you know, uh, one of the things, you know, you and I had talked about before, uh, and I can bring it up here, is uh, one of the trends I do like seeing is people understanding how to use a marker or a bridge-based communication system.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And
0: I'm, I'm 100%. seeing it more in yeah. the nose work world. Well. I was going to ask you, do you see the same thing occurring?
1: Yeah. I do. I do. I see a lot more people using markers. And what's kind of interesting is that, you know, kind of, you know, when you're calling an alert in a trial, you're kind of using a marker anyway. <laughs> yeah. but, Absolutely. But, Uh, yeah yeah you know the the thing is dogs understand that they're smart um no i I do see a lot of that and i I train with markers myself um i tend to use a verbal marker um i know i know you use more of a like a click no
0: i use both in fact i used a verbal marker probably the most uh until more recently when i had freedom because with the Navy seal dog program I knew, you know, as much as I would want to use a clicker initially, uh, obviously that wasn't a piece of equipment that those guys could have on them all the time. So having a verbal marker, I knew they weren't going to forget it in a, in, a, in a training bag someplace or they weren't going to leave it in their locker or what have you, right? So they always had that there. So, And even with that, we learned the trials and tribulations of a verbal marker for us, which was we initially started using the word yes and, of course, Unfortunately, we would use that all the time when we talk and hung out and had dogs around us, this, that, and the other. So then we started using the word free, and that was uh, very useful for us. And that was just a piece of evolution that we went through on there. And like I tell everybody, as long as you use what you use and... And it's consistent in that manner, that's the most important part. I totally get and understand the mechanical device. And there's, I've had great conversations with with other uh, very well educated trainers. And I totally get the use of, you know, mechanical device is the sense it's always consistent, it sounds the same, so on and so forth. And I agree. And the unique aspect to it, which I've seen both on the cognit- cognitive side of things and just in general, where when it's me saying a word, there's that connection of me to it, where it, when I use a device, a clicker or a whistle, the, it, the dogs do differentiate, oh, that device did it, not necessarily you, but, you know, so it's unique and I, I both work. I have zero problem using either or, and I do use both, actually. I mean, I start off with a clicker and then most times I phase to uh, a word that I use. And again, for the, for the reasons for the practical reasons for me, um, or the ones I'm training in the professional aspect, but even the ones I've worked with on nose work, I tell them, Hey, you know, cause some of them, as, as we both know, come from other sporting programs where they've already used a clicker. So, oh
1: yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and like I said, I teach at Fensi Dog Sports Academy. It's a, it's a positive reinforcement based, um, academy and now I'm a, I'm a clicker trainer from, from the beginning. Um, and you know, so, so yeah, I feel good about the timing. Um, I think sometimes uh, when, when you get very, very new students, um, the clicker can be a slightly problematic. Uh, if you click the wrong thing consistently, you know, if you get an errant click here or there, I mean, yeah, it's not the end of the
0: world, sense. but yeah, you're right. Yeah, but you got to pay attention sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And then you get a lot of um, with, uh, with nose work, you get a lot of dogs that are crossing over from other sports. So you get that can be very, very operant who, but they're focused, but they're used to um, the click meaning of behavior. So you can end up with a dog starting to give you some really superstitious behavior.
0: Sure, very good point. Which
1: is, you know, the other the other challenge there. Which so it's one reason why I tend to use a verbal marker, um, especially when I teach folks. And also the other reason why I tend to use a verbal marker is I think it can be very difficult to be. We can um, imply a level of precision. That isn't necessarily um, feasible, if that makes sense. Like, it, like in terms of if a dog's pinpointing it, well, you can get a dog that starts saying, "Well, well, how about a little bit to the right? How about a little bit to the left?" Right? And it, but the answer is that it doesn't really matter. So then, I think you can um, create some um, again, you know, some you can create some issues I think. Um, and I think that's just kind of the downside of it, but on the positive side is very, very clear. Yes. So, and the, you know, it, and back to the handler
0: changed. influence thing that we were talking about earlier, it helps reduce a, a lot of that handler, uh, influence or seeking handler for information because if the dog is clear on the task that I do, I do this and then this happens, then I get my reward versus constantly looking to you, are you reaching in your pouch now? Are you moving this way? Are you, you know, all the different things that they're problem solving with to, to figure that out.
1: Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, the way I train, I, I tend to personally de-emphasize the alert, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which I know it's very different from the professional side. I mean, you guys and know, that's
0: changing too, because one of the things that I teach is, and again, I, I took this yeah. from what I learned it, with the process at Duke when I was asked the question is, the first question they ask is, why do they have to sit? <laughs> and of course, there was no you know, reason why. Yeah. It was what the industry used and stuck with. And there's very good you know, validations for it. I fully agree. But at the end of the day, the guidance that the professional side goes with is what the Supreme Court says we have to do. So in general, all that says is a readable alert by the handler. And then that has kind of evolved to say a readable alert is a demonstrative change in behavior that even a layman can see oh. and say, and say a dog did something here. Yeah, well, uh, that,
1: that's the difference, right? That that layman part yeah. of it. Yeah,
0: and, and, and it even says layman, i.e. judge and jury, says wow. that, that can look at this and say the dog did something there. So whether it's scratching or barking or standing still yeah. or whatever – Um, that's that's relevant, and that that is a readable alert by the handler. So, of course, on the professional side, back in the day, we painted ourselves into a corner of the dog must sit, and there's even been policies written where the dog must sit or certifications that state the dog must sit, And, and that has gone away too, but there's still some out there that have that. So what happens is the lawyers look at it and say, Oh, I watched a video from your body camera or your patrol car camera, and nowhere did I see your dog sit. But yet you said there was an alert here. And of course, many handlers can say, "Well, my dog changed behavior. This happened. This happened. There wasn't an ability to for the dog to sit, but I knew by the dog's behavior it alerted or indicated to the substance was or the odor of the substance was present." So the so it, it, many times, and I ask handlers all the time: If your dog doesn't sit, does that mean you can't tell there is something there? You wouldn't call an alert, and they're like, "No, I would definitely call it. Yeah, and we so we get that. So what I what I bring to what I bring up to them is think about it in this way: by reinforcing what the dog does naturally at the source of stimulus, the odor, reinforcing that creates a dog that does that only when that's present. You don't have a command to make that happen. The dog does this when there's odor there, and you are able to always articulate that much better. And a lot of times, the dog's natural behavior is focusing in, so it's a focused response to wherever that odor is at.
1: Yeah, and, and well, more demonstrative.
0: Yes, absolutely. Right? Yep.
1: Yeah. They, they, they build that confidence in what they're doing. And, and they build the confidence in the handler for calling it. And, you know, this is why you know, a lot of times people, people ask me, and, you know, this goes back to the symptom issue, right? And, yeah. and I'll be talking to people, and they say, you know, I need a stronger alert. And to me, that's almost like a red flag. It's like, if you say you need a stronger alert, you're talking symptom, and that's not, that's, I'm like, I can work on your alert, but that's not going to help you. Um, and, and it's all the, all the, you know, quote foundations, right. That go into that and, and all the, you know, is your dog even comfortable with communicating to you at this point? Um, and, and that, that's kind of where, you know, but, but yeah, when I train, I, I tend to think more about communication and less about specific behavior. And I guess that's also one reason why I tend to use a verbal because the verbal is right the, of the communication. Um, because that's what, I mean, honestly, when, when I'm competing, I just need to be able to know where that, you know, where to call alert and, all I need to know is be able to understand my dog, you know, and the judges can see it, so you know it, it works. Um, you know, I, I'm not I'm not held to a you know I have to prove it in court kind of thing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Exet Canine. Exet Canine possesses a broad range of unique expertise in canine training and handling, with applications both in scientific and operational capacities. Xet Canine also specializes in third-party independent canine certifications, assessments, and validations for both U.S. government and private business. Their staff understands individual requirements and is proficient in providing optimal canine solutions. Their team has active DOD secret and Department of Homeland Security sensitive security information security clearances. We pride ourselves on upholding the highest standards of integrity, discretion, and professionalism. Also at k 9 is the TAD device or the Training Aid Delivery Device. k 9 is proud to introduce the first commercial product, the Training Aid Delivery Device, created by U.S. Army and is designed by canine trainers and scientists. The TAD can bring your canine training to the next level. The design considerations ensure all components of the TAD are NASA outgassing compliant. It's inert. It's highly compatible with most training aids. It's rugged enough for daily use and training. Cleaned according with EPA standard methods. Capable of even being decontaminated and deodorized of human scent and any other environmental odors. The TAD device is a awesome device. I have seen it firsthand. It's a product that allows your training aid to be protected, but it allows it to off-gas the target odor that's inside it without being contaminated with outside scents. So there's a membrane that allows odor to get out, but not odors to get in. So I can tell you firsthand by seeing it, this is a great device. This is a great company. If you get a chance, go visit their website, Xset that That is spelled www.xsetcanine.com. E-X-C-E-T-K, the number nine, dot com. Again, www.E-X-C-E-T-K, number nine, dot com. The website will also be listed in our show notes and also on our social media feed. Are you looking for some new dog toys? Well, USA Canine Dog Toys, or also known as Soda Pup Dog Toys, are some of the best dog toys out there. They're a U.S.-based company. Everything's made and manufactured here in the United States. These toys range in all different types of uh, of ways to play with your dog or your dog to be engaged. They have toys that dispense treats. They have toys designed for chewing. And I tell you what, these toys, uh, if you have a hard chewer or a very destructive dog, they have some toys for you. I have one. My dog, Drew. Can pretty much destroy anything. And the USA K9 toys have lasted no problem at all with him. And that says something. So if you're out there looking for some new toys, go to sodapup.com, S O D A P U P.com. Check out the vast variety of toys they have available. Again, you can't go wrong. So whether you want to use it as a reward for detection work or any other competition or working aspect, or you just need some toys for your dog to chew on, these are the guys to go to. Check out USA Canine Toys or under their other brand, SodaPup.com. This episode is brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine, located in fabulous Scent City, Las Vegas. Silver State K9 is a premier education and training facility. We understand many of you, however, can't get to Las Vegas, so Silver State K9 has created our mobile classroom. We come to you. We now offer many of the classes and seminars we've held in Las Vegas, but now we can do it at your location. Some of the classes that we offer are our Canine Cognition class, utilize these tests that we show you to help you pick a better dog, or if you already have your dogs, use these tests to understand your dog better. Do they have strong memory? Are they a problem solver? This information is vital to help you train your dog better. We also offer our Detection Through Cognition class. If you're a detection dog handler, whether it be professional and or nose work, this class is a must. We give you information that you can apply that is based on science and communication so that way you can enhance your training based on cognition. We also offer our problem solving through cognition. Again, taking these cognitive tests, applying them to your training will help you problem solve some of the many common issues that are out there. In addition to that, we have our science of odor class. We also have our explosive identification and safety class. For anybody, whether you're a sport enthusiast or you're professional, we have our search strategy classes. These classes help you come up with a methodology based on practical, and proven methods to help you enhance your search strategies when deploying or putting your dog through a trial. We offer these classes and many more. For further information, please contact us at Ford, F O R D, at Silverstate K 9.com. That's Ford at Silverstate K the number 9.com. I love the fact that both in the sport and in the profession, so many of the things cross sides. You know, there's so many. Both sides deal with many of the same things. And the, the one thing I I do envy on the sports side is the evolution or uptake to be willingness to change does typically happen faster. Um, where on the professional side, there's a lot of things that are steeped in tradition, or the it's a change and you know unfortunately most of us are resistant to change that's human nature in general but even more so in in well established programs that have been around a long time and when you throw you, know, you throw science at them all of a sudden they're like what magic voodoo stuff are you talking about i don't need to hear about this we've done this for many years and it works just fine so and i always joke around i'm like you're right you know and those of you that believe that i challenge you to keep doing your reports on a typewriter i'm not saying it doesn't work because it definitely does, but we transitioned and evolved to using computers because it made our life easier. All I'm proposing is an idea that will make your life easier in training. But yes, if you are more comfortable typing on a typewriter, knock yourself out, no problem. I have zero issue with that. So. Yeah,
1: we well, have different pressures on us than you guys do. I mean, it's, um, I mean, you're you've got pressure to you know train dogs within certain amounts of time and stuff like that, and we, you know we don't. I mean, we, we don't have that kind of thing. It's just. more... Um, you know, you you're gonna feel like if you're an instructor, you know, your your students are like, when can I trial? When can I trial? And I'm I'm usually trying to slow everybody down, but um, it, it's more it's more self-imposed pressure, and it's it's not. Um, and, and even then, you know, I mean, you, you have you have to you have to do what's right for the dog. Um, I think in nose work, we have a lot of um, opportunity to do that, um, and you know, we're. And if there's a problem, we go. We can go back and fix it. But there, there's no pressure of like, well, this dog has to be trained in a certain amount of time or, or anything like that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. And you're right. That's that's unfortunately a, a pitfall that comes on the, on the professional side of things. Is they're like, okay, you have X amount of weeks to have this dog up and ready. But and it's reality,
1: right? So yeah. you know, I don't I don't know how you could get away from that. It,
0: it's it's tough. You know the, I you know I've had my you know myself I've had to go to administrations and you know, be able to articulate the whys of this is going to take longer or this kind of stuff. And you have to have to have a, uh, an administration willing to listen. You know, obviously, you know, depending on where you work, sometimes people are very open-minded or willing to listen to their subject matter expert who happens to be the canine unit trainer or the supervisor or what have you. And other ones are like, nope, make it make it happen. I need, that, I need those boots back on the ground answering calls. So if they're not there, I don't care what happens, you know, figure it out. But you will be back at work doing it at this time. So... It does make it. It does put pressure, uh, and unfortunately, at times it creates where we got to cut corners or we have to do additional training while we're working, which will prolong it anyway. So, yeah, yeah. So on, yeah. on all of this, when we're as we build this uh, dog and his team, um, one trend that I'm seeing. Thank goodness, more off on the professional side. And I did an interesting survey with nosework people, and I was a little surprised by the answer. And maybe you can expand upon it. But I, I asked, "How many do blind or double-blind searches on the on the right. nosework side of things?" That's I was awesome. ast- I was That's astounded awesome. by how little yeah. there was. Yeah. yeah. And in an in a uh, element of, of, of sport where you have, you know, some very good freedoms to, to do this, how little that occurred. And I'm seeing it, thank goodness, on the professional side, they realize they need to because it validates them both when they looked, looked at legally that they do things like an odor recognition test, which does happen, obviously, in the, in the sport world. But they also now do blind and double-blind searches. So that way they're able to say, Hey, look, we, you know, I have zero information. I come back and let the person know whether we found something or not. And if we did, you know how that went down. So, but yeah. uh, So is there a reason why we don't see, uh, and I I think I know, but I'm just curious to hear from somebody like you, why there isn't at least a little bit more uh, brought into the equation of doing blind or double blind uh, searches to training.
1: Well, I think, I think there's a, um, there, there's a practical aspect to that too. Okay. And so first of all, I'll talk about the practical part of it. Uh, a lot of us don't have other people to train with.
0: Okay. Good point.
1: So, or if, or if we're in a class, we want to be able to practice. And so we're on our own. Um, so being able to set a hide and actually run the dog on the hide without influencing the dog is, is a real skill. Um, and I, th- I think it's an important skill because it also teaches you, um, if you, if you can observe, right, you can observe how you influence a dog. I'm a huge proponent of video everything. You know, I, I video all my all my searches when I when – I, I was when just I-
0: going to ask that. That was another question I had, so I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Go on with that.
1: Yeah, I totally, I totally, I video everything because I also want to see um, how, how am I influencing my dog? Is my dog, is the focus shifting anything toward me? If I'm to the right, is my dog listening to me and listening to my communication? You know, things like that. Um, or am I, um, you know, how much pressure am, am I putting on the dog physically? Um, just in terms of location, like pressure. Um, different things like that I'm paying attention to. I also, um, I video everything also because I want to see, it's the dog that educates me about odor. Uh, I mean, I can have the, you know, I've got some of the, you know, yeah, the, the technical stuff behind, you know, with the fluid flow mechanics and everything, but, but really you don't really learn until you watch the dog and, um, you know, but, but in, far, in terms of blind, um, there are a lot, there are some challenges with, with doing blind hides and I see it as, um, in, in one case it can be a cause of a lot of trust issues um, because you, what you get is, um, handlers that, don't necessarily trust their dog the first time around. So they come around and they're like, yeah, I know you're indicating there, but I have this history with you. And, and, and I, and the the word that is like fingernails on a chalkboard with me is my dog lies. That's like
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I asked that question with Doctor Hare on that episode, and that was a great response. We went on that one.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, I hate that one. That that that's like the biggest pet peeve is my dog lies, and I'm like, well, no, your your dog does what it's reinforced to. Yep, and and you know, they don't have like,
0: to have intent to lie. So <laughs>
1: exactly, there's no intent. My dog yeah. goes, and goes, "Hey, let's see if I can play on my handler this time," you know. But they get and they've got this history because they may have had false alerts and and trials, or even false alerts in training. And it gets into the handler's head. So the handler stops believing in the dog. And so then yep. the, the dog indicates and the dog says, oh, I guess we're not finding this hide today. I guess uh-huh. this is what you want. This isn't what you're looking for. And so they move on. Yeah. Um, and then you end up with this cycle. And then you end up with a trust cycle. Um, yep. You know, so that is kind of, at that point, I usually tell people stop the blind hides because you need to build that history of a dog going to the hide and getting a reward.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. If they if they're yeah. not there, don't go to that next level where you're doing blind or double blind if you don't even have the trust aspect to begin with for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think sometimes um, you know, we we have to be careful as work instructors to not allow that to happen as people are surging in front of us. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes um, it's very, it's hard sometimes when you're teaching, you know, uh, you know, in a class situation, where you're trying to give the person the benefit of, you know, this is your time, your educational time in front of me. And, and sometimes, you know, if they feel like it, you tell them, well, well, that was it. They're like, well, I wanted to figure it out myself. And mm-hmm. so you, you kind of get into this kind of thing that, that, that's not real helpful. Um, No, yeah,
0: yeah. it can can spiral like you are saying pretty quick if they're not ready to be there, and it it goes back to that thing of wanting to push themselves too quick uh, when there is still some other foundation things that have to be built before you get there. But you you would say that those that are ready, that is something that they should be doing as part of their program. Yeah. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, as as much as you feasibly can. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the importance of doing blind hides actually increases as you go up the levels.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Mostly. And I think, I mean, you guys, you guys deal with unknown number of hides. It's not like oh, you're going to yeah. go out on a bus and say, oh, well, you know, just so you know, there's three hides yeah. of yeah. Yeah. out there and you find them all. You know, I don't think that's what happens. No. I mean, like, That's not what happens. And if it you're
0: does, people. it shouldn't be happening. So if you're listening and you do that, don't do that so much.
1: <laughs> right. So I think that when you get into a situation where you don't know how many hides are, you know, that's where, you know, having that blind experience is helpful because, um, but you have to have the, the, the education before you get to that point. Yep. And that yep. education is all about observation.
0: Absolutely. And, and then I, I add to this because those that have attended some of the seminars I do with Pete Stevens and Elliot Zibley, we've done, I get known as the guy that puts nothing out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what, and what yeah. I do is I always challenge them because they're so used to finding something in almost yeah. every room they go to. So yeah. for me, I do the opposite to them is I put, like, if yeah. they have, let's say, six rooms with me, there might be one hideout, maybe oh, two. and. I love- I love it. Oh, uh, they it, it, and then they they initially get concerned when they hit like room two or three. And they haven't found anything yet. They start having that pucker factor, like oh, I have to miss something by now. We we can't go to two rooms and not find anything. My dog won't search anymore. And then they what they realize by the end, they're like, my dog searched even better than I expected. And um, and the point I try to make, depending on the dog, of course, is nothing teaches hunting better than hunting. And if I put tons of hides out within a small space, am I really teaching hunting at all? I'm just teaching keep walking around and you'll stumble into odor.
1: And, you know, it's fun and it's reinforcing. But but the, the other thing is, and it kind of just build on this, is searching in the absence of odor, you actually, there's so much information that your dog is communicating to you. And what happens is, is when people are trying to learn how to clear areas, and initially I think, I think go, they go in, they're so used to always finding a hide, they look for, they kind of ignore everything before the change of behavior. So then they go into an area that has no odor and they're looking for a lack of a, of a change of behavior versus the behavior that the dog is giving them, telling them that there's nothing there to
0: begin with. Well, and it's funny because I bring that up at times. I've said, you guys are so good at reading your dog when there's something there that you guys don't know how to read your dog when they tell you there's nothing there. Yeah. And, and we'll do simple scenarios where they can see, whether it be container searches or what have you, and there's nothing yeah. out. And you'll quickly see the dogs want to go someplace else because they're like, there's nothing here. I need to go someplace else to find something. Yeah. And they, and they missed some of those cues that the dogs... Quickly told them, and what's amazing. So I'll give, I'll do an experiment. I'll discuss an experiment I did to some professional handlers, uh, and I did something similar to nose work. But the professional side was, I had two areas. The first area they come to, I told them just search the areas you normally do. You know, you can do on or off leash, however you want to do it. Um, and, and of course, most officers opted to do it off leash because the area was was big enough, but not you know horribly big and not too small. So the dog okay. would run through the space. Very quickly, and we're pretty much like nothing here. So the handler would, you know, put the put the dog on leash, and then kind of make sure the dogs checked a few other areas that they didn't check. And one area in particular that was a pretty obvious spot to check was a big wooden crate. And on that crate was dog saliva and human odor. So not, no target odor, but two other things that are commonly found for a dog when there is target substance there. So anyway, a lot of dogs would sniff extra, but then they would want to move on. That handler would see that and want to come back to there. You know, they would continue on, but then they would find their way back to that box and want to check it again. Um, the, the good handlers that would trust their dogs would kind of be like, huh, that's weird, nothing there. And then I would ask them, do you have something or not have something? And you know, I'd have some handlers tell me, um, well, they're showing me some indication there. And the joke I always make is you're either pregnant or not pregnant. You can't be kind of pregnant. <laughs> and, and Andy Wyman, if you're listening, yes, I stole your line. So <laughs> the, uh, but they will want to always kind of give like, well, maybe kind of, or, or in the nose work world, I'll hear them say alert. And I'm like, alert shouldn't end in a question mark. <laughs> right. <laughs> or or I'll, I'll say clear, you know. And uh, yeah. so, so yeah. the funny part was, so when I introduced him to the next search area where odor was present, almost every dog found it within oh. 8 to 15 seconds. Absolutely. So they, Absolutely. they would do the same thing. So I would tell the handlers, look, in most cases, your dog's first pass through the area is the most honest pass. Because the dog cataloged the area, ran around, searched, if it did a fairly good job, and showed you nothing, there was nothing there. Even, and almost every dog went by that box that had dog saliva and human odor on there and didn't show anything. But the minute the handler brought them over to check it, the dogs would investigate it further, show additional sniffing behaviors, but they weren't indicating. I don't think I had any dog, let's take it back, I did have one dog fully indicate, but that was due to the handler spending additional time there. I think it was on a third pass by it that the dog was like, okay, finally you want me to sit here. I guess I will.
1: There's no other interesting odor. So it has to be this one.
0: Yeah. So, and, and I wanted them to see because when they went to the next area where there was odor present, the dog's, I mean, immediately either it narrowed it down to this specific area or they had full-on alerted. So it gave them a good contrast comparison look at doing that. So on the nosework side, I've done things that are similar where I've had rooms and I've let the handlers just kind of I'll tell you know I, I play I do since I live in Vegas we come up with games like you know dice roll detection or re-roll dice you pick a number and that number has a scenario for you to do or I do detection dog roulette where I have like three areas set up and you know whatever whatever one you pick you run so, so two areas have no order one area does I don't get to pick it for you you picked it you know. And they have to navigate that. And at the end of the day, like you said, if you have your foundation is fairly solid, we know we you know no one's ever perfect, but if you have a good foundation and you have the trust, you should want to challenge yourself to those kind of things.
1: Exactly, and and it's interesting. And you know, I tell people, um, you know, look at your search times. Let's say if you're doing like NW three interiors, because uh, you know at, until 2020 anyway, it's just interiors that we have three rooms and one can be blank.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um, and you'll find if you look at the time you take in a blank area versus your other, your other search areas, um, it's way longer typically with, with a lot of teeth. Sure.
0: You know?
1: Like, oh, well, you know, why'd you spend, you know, two and a half minutes searching this one and 45 seconds searching the one with odor? You know, it, it, if your dog tells you there's nothing there, you know, don't, don't try to manufacture something. Cause you know, sometimes we, you know, we think we try to think for the judge, right? Well, you know, that looks kind of like a cool spot to put a hide.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's pretty common. That's human nature. So
0: so since you have the science and chemistry side with you, what are some common misconceptions that you hear frequently when it comes to substance and odor and and things that people, uh, you know, believe or think they know, or I always joke around, you wish you had scent goggles kind of concept.
1: Oh yeah. You know, the, the thing is I think people sometimes forget the whole hot air rises, cool air falls kind of thing. Um, I see, I see that a lot and, and they're just kind of uh, assuming, um, you know, it's, they're assuming it's going to do one thing and and they're not realizing that, that, or, or, or you could be inside and they're like, or, or outside, they're like, well, there's no breeze. And I'm like, oh, there's still air movement. You know, so, so it's, you know, people are, you know, that they kind of think about what we, you're thinking with your eyes, um, and, and then, and then you can um, kind of overlay like your thought on what I call it human precision, you know, human precision says, uh, this is where the hide is. So therefore, you know, th- this is what I'm going to accept from you. And, and, and that, that, that'll give you all kinds of training issues.
0: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, is, in and, and- Another thing I've, I've talked about with some of the chemists before, and it's always been on the professional aspect, but I see this a lot on the uh, nose work side of things too, is how, you know, for example, I've gone to various nose work seminars or competitions or, or, or just just having people out doing training, and they'll have all their substances in like one case. and and I know the uh, NACSW has, is very particular about, you know, even this type of strain that they're using for their birch or the anister clove. So if you store things together, you are kind of creating uh, some potential things to deal with. Uh, what would be your recommendation for people that, are, um, that do go out and get their own uh, training sets to work with? How would you recommend that they uh, store them or keep them or what should they do?
1: Well, you know, you always want to err on this, on the side of odor hygiene, right? And, and I, I think, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, glass jars, you know, stay away from plastic. Uh, plastics are really, really bad thing when it comes to odor. It may, it may, it may look airtight and it may, you know, you can put your sandwich in it and your sandwich is going to stay fresh. Um, but, uh, you know, you put odor in there, you know, the thing is dogs don't need holes to smell it, you know, and, uh-uh. uh.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, no, it's so. And then you take it yeah. back, and you and you pull it to open, you push it to close. You're you're constantly wearing <laughs> yeah. down that 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 mechanism of the seal, anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, it's just it, it's really not airtight. So you know, you really need to think about um,
0: you know. I'm glad you brought up glass jars because every single yeah. uh, doctor and chemist that is I've had on here. I always say the same thing, glass jars uh, with, you know, if you can, you know, do it, but the Teflon type lids, or even, you know, a good sealed mason jar, but even, you know, it depends on some of the ones they'll say, you know, you got to be careful because it depends on the mason jar, you know, some don't seal as nicely as other ones do and so forth, but so good. I'm glad you brought that up. How about, should do, you, do they want to keep them in a separate, you know, each odor in its own? Also, it's a Pelican type case? It, or
1: you, No, it, I, I think... You know, I think there, there, there's reality and then there's what we can do. So for, what we could do, yeah, that'd be awesome. You know, keep everything separate, um, you know, that sort of thing. In reality, that, it, that's really challenging for people and it's challenging for people from a training perspective. Um, I think the bigger issue is where you keep your odor when you're not using it. You know, do you keep it on your kitchen counter? Or do you keep it in your closet, you know, and, and if your dog, the thing is, you know, we, we think of, okay, you put it in your closet and you you know, you got your, um, I'm sure you guys don't have this problem with, with, with your substances, but, you know, if, if you put your pelican case or whatever in um, in your front closet and your dog's going to it every day, just because it's behind a door doesn't mean they can't smell it. You know, so I think that's that's a huge issue. The other issue that I, I think um, that people really need to think about is when you are setting hides, be very careful about the transfer of odor. Uh, you know, if you touch a hide and you just touch you touch a doorknob, right? You're 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 going to get residual odor there, and uh, and people I don't think they understand residual odor is actually technically source.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, because odor is odor. If, odor's if is air, odor is there, odor is there.
1: It creates a set cone. And yeah. so if you have, for instance, a blank area and you're doing a blank area, but you touch something, well, well now you have a set cone in there and your dog is going to say, yeah, there's odor in here. So, um, you know, I think, I think it, it, the odor hygiene is actually really important. Um, and the other thing that I do want to mention is also, please people don't, don't leave your hides up. Please pick them up when you're
0: done. <laughs> especially for those of you that, and I, and I do see that, uh, it, like you said, in especially regions, people kind of go to the same areas. And it, though I was there today, you might come there tomorrow because we all kind of know within our little community, oh, that's a great place to go do some nose work training.
1: Yeah. You know, I've, I've taught a lesson once where I was teaching, and I was teaching an individual, and she called alert, and I said, no, and she said, there's a hide here. And I walked over and there was a hide. <laughs> it, wasn't mine. it wasn't mine, and I was like, "Oh man you know and, and it messes with it messes with my whole puzzle but um, sure. you yeah, know yeah, I picked it up because you know you, you don't want to leave that stuff but no. you know it, it, yeah you just you have to be careful of the odor hygiene but yeah storing, storing containers if you can be as hygienic as possible I think I think it's more that it's being as hygienic as possible and if you're going going back to the glass jars, glass jars with plastic lids aren't going to cut it. You know, mm-hmm. you got you to gotta think about the, you know,
0: the whole. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. especially with those, I mean, those are essential oils and they and they oh, yeah. put on, they're so volatile. The headspace oh, of those yeah. are, are incredible.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: In, in comparison to, so you said, some of the stuff that we deal on the professional side of things. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, I, I've had it before. I've, I've, someone gave me, uh, so or actually where I work, we they already had some. So yeah. I opened this filing cabinet door and it smelled like a massage parlor. I, I like, exactly. Holy you know. Holy cow.
1: You know, it's it's incredible. Actually, I've done um, I've done some work just to kind of just see. I, I sometimes I like to see how far does odor go. Um, I had set a, a really like a well, it was a high height. is probably I don't know, like it was as high as I could reach. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm five foot eight and you know arms, so sure. however high that was, right? And it was a single um, post in like this big open bil- pavilion, and I let it age a little bit. And I knew the odor was going to blow into the pavilion, and I ran my two year old. And I wanted to work in unproductive area before we got there. So I started her searching way earlier. So it was kind of like a modified point to point kind of. Okay. Um, so, we're, you know, I just have her going and, then, and she, and all of a sudden at the corner of the, that pavilion, probably, and it was a huge one, it was probably 80 feet away. Um, the head came up and because I had set one hide, just a single hide, it was so obvious what that odor was doing. And it was really, really cool. But to see her pick it up so far away, you know, really drives home how far that odor goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to see that was like really cool, which actually oh, full yeah. circle, how far the odor goes, especially from a nose work perspective, you don't need to, um, and it goes back to directing, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Trust that the odor is there, that the odor is available because they, you know, they run the the dog in white or the, the yep. dog depending yep. on the organization. And, um, you know, and if your dog doesn't encounter it, it it's, it's, you, you don't have to recover it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, allow your dog to tell you that, and and don't and and don't assume that you have to search every nook and cranny because yeah. it, it's just not necessary.
0: No, for sure. And, and people get kind of—I joke around. I say they they get wrapped around the axle on that. They just feel they got to search all yeah. these different things, and especially with those substances, oh, oh, believe oh me, the God, dog God. Will, will. you don't have to overly detail or do much because if it's there. It, it will be smelled.
1: <laughs> it, is, it is. And the higher the hide, the farther it goes. So it, it's, you know, if you have a high hide, I mean, we had one, I was in a, a summit trial. I think it was, a, it was an Illinois trial. And, um, we had these big, huge bleachers and we had a threshold high hide and that odor was blowing all into the bleachers. And it, it was actually really cool to see how far that went, but you, you know, to be able to then after, cause, um, my dog actually caught that as a threshold And then we, um, but to see how far then that odor went, and how he was trying to still drive back to it, and then trying to interpret it—is it—is that the high hide, or is it something else? uh, Was actually kind of kind of cool, but it it just drives home um, how far that odor goes.
0: So in this conversation, it made made me think of something I've heard people ask before too, and you'd be a great one to to answer this. So. you know, people buy the essential oil, whether the birch, birch, anise, clove, or what have you. If you're in the other organizations, yeah. um, they'll ask, okay, do I put the drop of the liquid on a Q-tip, or do I put it directly on? Should I drop it in the jar, then put the items in there yeah. to absorb odor? What do you recommend when you're trying to create that training hide that you're going to place out in your area? What's the best way to uh, get that target substance onto something that you will place in your search area?
1: So there, there's. I can give you an answer from a, you know, a trial preparation because the Q-tips are prepared differently depending on the organization.
0: Okay, you do. You, I would say you give if you're able if you want to give both that would be good. This oh, for, yeah. for diverse listening.
1: So the way I t- I tend to personally scent most of my Q-tips are a little bit more consistent with kind of the NACSW method, um, right. where the odor is the odors in the jar, but it's not applied directly to the Q-tip. The, the Q-tip absorbs the odor. Yep. Um, versus putting the oil directly on the Mm -hmm. Q-tip. But in, uh, UKC, I know they put oil directly on the Q-tip and in AKC, they actually put two drops of oil on a single Q-tip.
0: Wow. Huge
1: huge amount of odor. Wow. Um, And so when I train dogs, um, because I, I compete, I don't compete usually in UKC, but I compete in AKC and NACSW. Um, and and I also compete in Canada, but, um, I'm, I train my dogs on both because they're going to be exposed to both. Okay. Um and the thing is is that when I imprint a dog though, I don't imprint them on on heavy odor. Mm-hmm. Um, or not anything like that, because that's almost aversive at that point.
0: And, and in that sense, yeah. And it's funny that you bring that up, because on the professional side of things, we do make the, we start off with a stronger amount of odor and work our yeah. way down. Yeah. But, but within your world, it's already strong in many yeah. of the circumstances that it is. So you almost yeah. need to bring it down to start, in a sense, uh, because it is so strong just by itself in small amounts.
1: Yeah, so, but then I'll be able to go down further in later training, or I go higher. Yeah, um, I think the problem that a lot of people run into is if they just train with one strength. Yeah, and um, because they're like, oh well, I only train in AKC and it's two drops of oil, so they're training. I mean, granted, it's going to vary. Two drops is two drops, but um, you're, you know, you're you're still talking a large amount of odor. Yeah, and the problem is, is if you don't train also on light odor, mm-hmm. the dog's not going to catch those high hides. The dog's not going to catch the inaccessibles because they're going to say, yeah, well, that doesn't count. Because what I'm looking for is that stronger odor.
0: Well, Only that, if your dog number sixty in the trial, yeah. it's, that scent picture that exists is totally different than dogs oh, yeah. one through twenty.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it can it can vary dog to dog, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. we were um, I was competing in Colorado. Um, at, at our elevation is like seventy seven hundred feet,
0: which is another aspect to consider when you're dealing with odor: is elevation and atmosphere.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and so and the barometric pressure was going up and down.
0: Uh huh.
1: Um, so wow. we saw um, even in exteriors. I mean, I saw some weird things happen with with odor, um, yeah. and I mean, I, of course, I was competing, so I just saw my own dog. But you know, I was hearing after the trial how how other people did, and and the the judge um, who who was talking a lot about the barometric pressure. It was really interesting because he said it was going up and down. All I know is that odor was doing some. Crazy things that day, yeah. um, and and it, it it is kind of amazing how how sensitive it is, and it can be sensitive dog to dog. You know, we're not we're not closed systems. That's the thing. Sometimes people think, and this goes back to your question about what do people assume about odor. Mm-hmm. You know, people kind of assume a closed system. Mm-hmm. They assume, oh well, I'm in this room, and odor doesn't escape, so therefore odor is going to be here and here. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and of course, if you're in a closed system, it's going to be circulating anyway, but that, that's besides the point. Sure. It, um, you know, it changes, It, it you know, it's, um, and I, I think, you know, trying to understand that is, is something that.
0: Well, and you're bringing up a thing that I've heard recently as AKC has grown, yeah. um, they have their judges in, and, and, and I know for, I know it's changing or it has changed too, where before though, If you were qualified as a judge in another aspect in the AKC programs, you could also be a judge in the scent work side of things. And that became problematic because those individuals didn't understand scent or how scent moved and worked and what happened. And that was problematic. So, you know, one of the things I always recommend to people, especially if you decide to get more serious, is understanding scent and how scent works so that way you can be as fair as possible, especially on the competition side of things because it, it you, know, you having the background that you have definitely know that the dogs who started the day have one picture of how things are and the dogs at the end of the day have a different one. And it's when time and temperature are all major factors and these things are all occurring in that same event. So the dogs technically at the end of the day don't necessarily always get the same evaluation because they're not on the same conditions anymore.
1: Yeah. They're, they're not on the same conditions. And, and, you know, I think the, I think the program is, is really evolving and yeah. you know, a lot of education going on. And I'm Absolutely. actually from clarity perspective, I'm, I'm involved on in doing some of that education. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an AKC contractor, so I, um, I'm, I'm helping AKC out, but the, um, you know, yeah, it, a lot. It, I think from a judging perspective, there's a whole lot of um, education that has to um, that the people have to self-educate
0: also. Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. you know, when you come in, you have yeah, you do have to realize um, you have to think about airflow. You know, you, you you know, it's not just about the location of the hide. Mm-hmm. Um, and Absolutely. And a little myopic. I mean, one of the things that I'm um, with AKC when when I first started helping them out. Um, there was a rule in place that you, that the dog had to alert within six inches of the hide. Wow. Not as an advanced level. And I, I came in, I'm like, well, you know, we're going to be telling dogs, no, who deserve. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, and I actually made a video. It was kind of neat. I, I put a, um, a hide under a chair and I, mm-hmm. I videoed this. I put my iPad down there and I videoed using like a, like a, a draft detector. Okay. Yes. So you could see what the odor did under a nice. chair and, and just kind of how it, it, it's, but the, the visual was just how it's dynamic. Yeah, because again, we we kind of picture it. We picture odor as a laser pointer if we're not careful. Yep. You know that, but it is dynamic, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and I think, and, and we're always learning. Everybody, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a learning process. You know, um, and goes back to observing the dog.
0: Absolutely. No, it's, it's great. I, I try to do, whether it yeah. be sport dogs or professionals, I always do a, a class where I'm showing, I have our little smoke machines and I show them just how, what they think is going to happen. We'll talk about it first and then I'll activate and they'll see what really happens. And that's using smoke, which is obviously super light and very dynamic as well. But, um, but at least it gives, and that really helps everybody, is it's a visual. Then they can kind of go, oh, okay. And I say, you know, of course, not every substance acts equally. You know, some have very volatile substances. Some are not so volatile. And then there's the temperature and time and wind and air currents and, you know, depending on all, your, all these different things that go into play. So, uh, But again, it, on, a, on a basic level, it's to demonstrate and give a visual so that way it's their version of scent goggles. They can get a, by seeing it, it gives them better understanding. Like when you open a door, watch how much comes out, you know, or look how much is coming in, you know, depending yeah. on where you're at.
1: So. Yeah, we have to be careful that we don't um, read too much into that smoke. Um, and, and just from the standpoint of, for a couple different things, um, the, the, what we use to generate the smoke, all of those devices have a heating element in them. Mm-hmm, yep. So, so we're applying um, to, you know, heat to create the vapor, which is going to yep. lift the air. So we have yes. to just be careful we're not um, taking it at face value, right? Yeah, and that, yeah, that we it's, it's, a, it's
0: a very uh, crude version of demonstration. Yeah. <laughs> so. exactly.
1: exactly. Just so as long as we understand that, that it, it's not 100% accurate. And yeah. uh, the only ac- the only 100% accurate thing is really the dog.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: You yeah. But, but I think, I see think dog
0: after dog do the same thing. Oh.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like well, obviously this is what the odors doing, um, but I, I think it creates a great visual having those those devices really help.
0: And it's fun to do it in a car because that way people can also see. <laughs> you know, they, they they expect certain things that happen to a car, and you're like, oh, how come it's not coming out of that spot or that spot? You know, yeah. Especially much- something like this, it's just easy to get right. an escape from.
1: A funny story: a friend of mine. Uh, we you know we have these things called. Have you seen a wizard stick?
0: No, I have not.
1: Oh, it's it, it looks like. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> this sounds awesome.
1: Child's <laughs> <laughs> toy, but it creates that uh, that same vapor, right? Okay. And a lot of times we use it in nose work instead of using like the dragon puffer or something like that, and uh, and you use this wizard stick. It's blue and it's a child's toy. Okay. But it, it can look like a bong.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh huh.
1: <laughs> so I had a friend of mine, and she was testing it out, and she was sitting in her van and testing her out in, in the in the van. And um, she did it like I get the like, cop was like knocking on her window. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so, awesome! Wow. I have to look that thing up.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's called a wizard stick. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
0: But uh, saying, whether you're if you're out in the West Coast, no one will think anything any, anything twice no, no, about you no. using <laughs> it. But you know, maybe other parts of the United States, it might be might catch someone's attention. But
1: oh, absolutely, absolutely. But it is kind of funny because she was, you know, because the, the smoke's coming out the top, and you know, it's kind of.
0: No, it's yeah, you're right. I mean, it's those things are you know again. It's a it's um, yeah. a, cr- a crude way of giving us some insight and exactly. in giving us set goggles as to what we hope or uh, have a better understanding of. Definitely, you know, air currents without a doubt.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, if you can understand, because the other thing about understanding air currents is, if you're having a problem in training, um, you have to ask yourself: Is it a training problem or is it a high placement problem? And I I would almost if you are setting a hide that's at the appropriate challenge level for your dog, and your dog can't find it, it's a hide issue. You know, and a lot of times we jump to it because this this goes back to the, the handler influence, right? Because we, we jump to the the conclusion that it's a it's a, it's the dog, uh, the dog can't find it. Well, you know, maybe it's not findable.
0: Well, you bring up a point that I I, I talk about a lot on my professional lectures is. on the professional side, everything is documented by weight. Oh, my training aid was 28 grams, or it was one pound. And I quickly show them that weight really has nothing to do with how that item is putting out odor, its surface area. And I'll I'll give the example, I have like a little vial of vinegar, and I'll say, okay, this little plastic vial has vinegar in it, let me know when you smell it. And they bring it closer closer to the nose, they can smell it. And it could be like five inches away or what have you. So I'll pour that same uh, vial out on the table and within seconds, everybody within 8, 10 feet can smell it. And I say, okay, what changed? Because the weight didn't change. I just poured out what was in the container onto the, onto the table. And I showed them surface areas. So like you said, hide placement. So when uh, some of these trainers will put out their training aids... They put them out in certain ways, and in certain ways, it creates more surface area. In other ways, there's less surface area. So on some days, they see their dog nail it from 10 feet away, and then another day, the dog has to be like on top of it. And then they they question all these things about the dog, and I let them know, well, did you look at the training hide and how you set it up? Because you may have allowed for more surface area or less surface area, and then the set time was the same. And that is not going to be the same way that that odor is going to work. So you have to be very aware and understand surface area. And especially when you're doing a new dog, use it to your advantage. Yeah. you know. And then as you get more proficient, challenge it. Give less surface area or or, or deeper depth or any number of different things that we can come up with. But first understand surface area is what is reacting with the environment that is creating the molecules that become the odor that your dog's looking for.
1: So now think of it in terms of the residual. If you touch a hide and you touch something.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right? If you touch yep. a hide and then you grab a um, a doorknob, that whole the whole doorknob's hot, right? Yep. So you're your that that area that you touch is actually a larger surface area than your original. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. And so then we wonder, like, well, you know, <laughs>
0: Hey, why is the dog alerting over here? And and I get this on the professional side a lot of times. Door handles on cars. Yeah. I can tell you how many cops will be like, "Oh yeah, my dog loves door handles on cars." Well, I wonder why. You know, how <laughs> many times have you placed an interior hide and then open and close the door, and then yeah. to your benefit, where are the, when the drug user that you stopped today? and they've used drugs day after day in their vehicle to smoke whatever and inject whatever, they do their, know, their right? hand-to-hand transaction, they go to use it, what is the thing that they're touching all the time? The door handle. Right. The door so, handle, is- all right. So Exactly. So the dog gets reinforced a couple of times because they are right. They did smell something there. Well, the dog, the first place they're going to go to, to yeah. look for because of success, is the door handle. Yeah, so, dogs works,
1: right? Dogs you- do what works.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, so, so no, I, I, and this has been uh, some awesome information. So I want to ask how can people find you? Where can they go to gain in for more information or, or to maybe even work with you? What, what, is, uh, what are your typical social media or what is your website? Things like that.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have, I have a website. I have my own website. Um, it's uh, sensibilities. And- nw.com that's sense like s-c-e-n-t-s okay abilities nw.com and okay. i also um i teach at fenzy dog sports academy mm-hmm. and that's uh fenzy f-e-z-n-i dog sports academy dot dot com and classes actually just started on august 1st okay um, and those run for six weeks but, um, but the webinars that I do are done through, uh, done through my, my company. Um, and, and those, I always have webinars are usually like weekly. And I think, and you and I, I mean, we're, we're going to be doing something. Absolutely. we, we got to get that on the, on the calendar also, because that, that's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, for sure, and, and and for those listeners, I'm going to put all those websites on the show notes. So, oh, yeah, so yeah. If they don't have to try to quickly write that down or hit rewind. Uh, we will put those links in the show notes, so that way it's easy to go to and easy to follow. And I'll have Stacy just email us to me, and I'll just uh, attach those to the show notes. So. Uh, That's fine.
1: And, that, and there's, a, there's a blog on there. I have like, I don't know, like 80 entries in there. And awesome. It's so, because um,
0: people are always asking, and they really do, they email me asking, where can I go to learn more about this? Where can I go to read about that? So that's fantastic. That's a great thing to be able yeah. to go to on your website to find.
1: Yeah, and that, that's you know obviously it's free and everything, um, but you know, and I have to say that the, the probably the older entries aren't as good as the newer ones, but sure.
0: <laughs> but it shows evolution in, yeah. in in the learning curve, which is what is also super important. You know, we all learn by, and I'm doing it constantly. That's why I laugh about my detection dog questions of the week because I've even evolved from the first ones I did just months ago. Oh, no. You know, people always bring great great information to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really, really love those. And it, it's, um, a, as a competitive, um, handler, it's, it's really kind of cool to see some of the, um, you know, the, 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 the changes that the professional side is kind of going through because it helps us to also kind of think about what makes sense and how can we, how can we apply it? And I think it also helps us like with, with those detection um, questions that you do, I love seeing the perspectives Oh and yeah, I think perspectives also drive, um, uh, decisions that we make.
0: It, it can be quite spirited and passionate at times.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, can, I can, absolutely, um, absolutely. But it's, it's really just neat to kind of see the direction where everything's going. I, I'm excited about the future with this and. Um, yeah, no,
0: we are definitely in, and it's been said numerous times in this podcast, it's a Renaissance period. And, yeah. and you know, whether Picasso and, and, and as uh, you know, jokes we made is our Sistine Chapel that we're trying to establish in our period here <laughs> yeah. uh, as we, but the biggest thing is that You know, for the first time, many of us are open to what's out there. Um, you know, and, and I made a joke yesterday with, uh, or actually I was actually talking to Dr. David Adabembe today. Um, you know, it validated he, he, not that he needed it, not that he wanted it and anything else, but we, we did some research and it came out that this, the manufactured training aids that he has do match really well with pure form of substance. So that was oh. nothing, nothing, that he did you know, in his mind. He was like, I already noticed you guys are wasting your time. And I was like, yeah, I get it, but it's still, you know, it's informative for us no matter what to to learn those things but the there's so many things within the detection dog industry that is kind of just based on tradition and now yeah. that we are using the the science out there even the scientists themselves, there's that old joke that the only thing two trainers agree on is a third trainer messed up. Well, just the same thing happens in science. The only yes. two things I've seen scientists agree on is that the third scientist has a flawed study. So, yes. so yes. I get it. We, we, we you know... And I always tell everybody, and I've repeated this before in the podcast, is there's – and in my questions of the week kind of thing that I put out there, despite the passion and the noise that happens, there's, there'll be the far right side, the far left side as far as the arguments go. But there's always, always a consistent theme no matter what. There's always something that stands out. And despite the noise, the, the thing that we look for is what stands out. And despite yep. anomalies or things like that, there will be a core thing that look that's, that's there. And from that is the truth most times, you know, it's not always the case, but, you know, as a, any scientist will tell you, it's not about being right or wrong. It's trying to find out what the truth is. So we're, we're constantly evolving in detection world and we're trying to find out what things are true and what things have just kind of been an assumption, you know, and we're still guessing a lot, but we're still, but we're also moving in the right direction.
1: I, I think so. And I think we're doing the same thing in, in the sport side. And you know, for me, I just, you know, I, I, I just want to say what, how, how can I help this dog? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, and, and people are going to come at things from different, different directions. And I, I think that's great actually, but as long, as long as we are respecting the dog yeah, and, and we're, we're respecting the sport. Um, and you know, it's a sport on my side, but yeah. respecting what the, what the dog can do. Um, then does it 100% matter? I'm not so sure. Yeah, um,
0: you You're know. right, because and, and a lot of people do bring that up, and it's a valid point. They're like, hey, I just work with that dog, and I, and I don't disagree. I, I think that's important. I also, to, for me, feel it's equally important to, can we learn more? What can we take? Uh, as As we are delving deeper into understanding dogs, can we apply something that... And we've all seen it. We talked about it earlier, applying the marker training. Is, is there things that we can apply that make communication easier and more beneficial to the dog? Or in general, on the legal side of things, create more reliability. You know, And, and that, at the end of the day, is, is a, a common goal that we all have. You know, We all want. And whether you do it by feel and by your experience, which are highly valuable, or you do it by learning and reading through research and getting collecting data and things like that we all have, we all share a common goal. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just really, um, you have to, it's, and I, and I think a good trainer learns how to adapt. So, you know, you, you start to, you realize, okay, there, there's a lot of really good stuff here, but, and you see a lot of dogs and you, you start to see there there's different flavors and, and the more you can experience and the more you can observe the, you know, the better you can try to figure out those flavors.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, I thank you so much for your time and coming on here and expanding. And like you said, we'll be doing more collaborations through the webinars. And uh, and I I know I'll have you on here again and we'll expand and and talk about some of the things that that have happened between this episode and the next one we do. So I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much. It's really been a blast. I've really enjoyed it. So um, I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you again.
0: Absolutely. Listeners, thank you for tuning in and until the next time, we'll talk to you then. Well, that concludes this episode of canines talking sense. I hope everybody enjoyed my conversation there with Stacy and you were able to take something from it, whether you're a competitor in nose work or you're a professional, all of these things uh, that we talk about can overlap in various ways. So again, uh, I'm really hopeful that you as a listener are able to take away something from episodes like this where there is good crossover information. With that said, I really, really appreciate everybody's emails, uh, social media contact, where you've let me know the, uh, what you've taken from these episodes. You've enjoyed these conversations that I've had with the various guests. Um, we've got some good ones coming up. The next episode itself is going to be another really good one. Uh, It's going to be my interview with Dr. Paula Prada, now Paula Tiedemann. She's newly married. Uh, We go into pseudo versus real and the results of research that was done that gives us a better and more clear answer as to what we should use, how we should use it, and things like that. You guys will definitely want to stay tuned for that one. It is one that's been on everybody's radar for quite some time, so you'll definitely enjoy it. Again, easiest way to reach me with questions, comments, or suggestions is Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. Ford at SilverStateK9.com. Please let me know uh, any questions you have. Also, I am going to be out and mobile a whole lot more this year, coming up in 2020. So if you're interested in having me out to do a seminar, uh, contact me. We will pick out some dates, figure out what works best. Um, I want to be able to do more than just share the information via a podcast or a webinar. Uh, Many of us learn even better when we get to do things in a practical aspect or hands-on learning. So I want to do that a whole lot more in 2020. So whether you come out to Silver State in Las Vegas or I come to you, we can make that happen. So just email me, ask me questions, and we will try to get something set up. So with all that said, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Sensible Canine. Making sense of scent work. The Sensible Canine is owned and operated by Pete Stevens. Pete Stevens has a vast experience in detection dogs. And myself and Elliot Zibley were the first three three bald guys everybody remembers us as working together, uh, putting out various seminars under Sensible Canine. And it has since grown to what it is today and keeps Pete pretty busy. Sensible Canine is... Uh, A education and workshop-based business. Pete goes to your area or you come out to Southern California and go through various types of seminars where we focus on the skill sets needed, most times geared towards nose work, but these days it's expanding to all types of scent work, uh, professional and sport. So look up uh, the Sensible Canine The website is exactly that, thesensiblecanine.com. I will put a link in the show notes. Contact them, set up a seminar, or come to one of the seminars that we host uh, many times in the Southern California area. But soon, we will have our first Sensible Canine in Las Vegas at the Silver State Canine Facility. So, again, look up thesensiblecanine.com. It's k9.com for the end of that. But again, I'll have the show notes. We'll have the web link there for you.